Welcome to the Retire Right Podcast with Larry Heller. You deserve complete financial advice. There's no acceptable alternative if you want a plan to live well and on your terms. Complete financial advice equals complete peace of mind. Now, let's get into this week's podcast episode. Hello and welcome to episode number 18 with Larry Heller. Today we have a very special guest, Michael Nolan, a trust and estate planning attorney with offices in Melville and New York City. Today we're going to talk about estate planning fundamentals and estate planning after these recent tax law changes. Guys, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. This is a very, very hot topic. So Larry, why don't you take it away? Thank you, Matt. So why don't we cover the estate planning fundamentals first just to give people a little bit of a background on what's important and the documents that they need to have in place. So, Michael, why don't you start off? Sure, I'd be happy to do that. You know, in the estate planning world, it's very easy to get caught up in the complexities uh, because there is a whole vast world of complexities. Uh, but we often we could miss the most fundamental planning techniques. So I want to be sure when I sit with a client that before we get into anything fancy or complex, that the basic foundational pieces of an estate plan are in place. And by that, I mean, number one, does the client have a power of attorney? A power of attorney is typically a standard document. In New York, there is a standard durable general power of attorney. In this document, you name someone, a a trusted person, typically a family member, to step in your shoes and be you and act on your behalf. This is while you're living. So as you might imagine, uh, this addresses a a situation where someone is temporarily incapacitated, maybe had an accident and can't sign the checks to pay the bills or can't otherwise do things that are so immediately necessary. Well, you can name someone to step in your shoes under a power of attorney, and and you can be uh, very specific about the powers that you want that that agent to have, uh, and including you could be as broad as allowing that agent to make gifts of your assets on your behalf. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary thing to do to name someone who can sort of clean you out of your assets, and why would you want to do that? Well. If I have a person that is concerned about long-term care costs and asset protection and perhaps wants to take advantage of some planning techniques where we could move assets outside of that person's name and protect them, maybe they go into a trust or to a trusted family member, um, and then we, we, we may then be able to make that person eligible for Medicaid as a for instance. So the power of attorney uh, can be as narrow or as broad to include gifting powers as the client would like. And, you know, it's a sensitive area. We want to be sure that that the person who's being selected, that is the agent, is, is a very trusted person because there is the possibility for abuse. But if, you know, if you're fortunate to have loved ones and uh, those that you trust, it's probably the most, it's the single most important document I, I see. If, if I get a phone call and someone is in trouble, uh, one of my first questions is, is there a power of attorney? Because if there's not, everything is at a standstill. We can't do anything or this client can't do anything. And we're actually forced to start a guardianship proceeding in the courts 
know, and that's thousands of dollars. It's a difficult proceeding to have a guardian appointed. You can avoid that through a power of attorney. It's very inexpensive to do uh, because it really is a standard form in New York. And so I recommend it as one of the foundational pieces of an estate plan. Next, I'd like to be sure a client has a healthcare proxy. Uh, that is, that that client has named an agent to make his or her medical decisions in the event he or she became unable to do so. You know, historically, when I was a much younger lawyer, we would draw living wills. A living will is a statement of your your wishes regarding the use of life-sustaining health care treatments. And, uh, but it didn't name an agent. But now in New York, and indeed in most states, you may name an agent to make your medical decisions. There's a temptation in this same document to get very specific about your, your medical wishes. But what we have found is if we get a document that's sort of too complicated, that when the time comes where it's being reviewed by a, a doctor, it's often, you know, that it's often so complicated uh, that the doctor uh, can't quite fit the circumstance into the doc- document. And we have a situation where the doctor's not sure how to proceed. So I think my, my single most significant piece of advice with the healthcare proxy is you name an agent and then you broadly authorize that agent to act on your behalf. And then perhaps you say in the document that you have discussed with your agent your wishes and your intentions and, uh, and that you mean for your agent to have that, that broad authority to act on your behalf. So we have the power of attorney and we have the healthcare proxy being two of the fundamental uh, documents. And then, of course, uh, there is your last will and testament. Uh, and some people believe that instead of a last will and testament, they should have a, a revocable living trust. Uh, that's a word, uh, a phrase that we see used often, and perhaps it's overused. Um, but for, for people that would prefer to avoid the probate process, which is to say that when someone dies and they have a will, that will is only, uh, only has its authority if it has been probated. Now, the word probate is a Latin term meaning to prove. So your will has to be proven to be valid. You know, it's such an awesome document that it only makes sense that there would be some checks in place to make sure that it really is your will. And so there's a proceeding in place to make sure the will uh, is, in fact, truly your, your last will and testament. But sometimes that probate process is difficult. And uh, if, it, if, it's, if it is to be difficult or if we expect that it would be difficult, we want to avoid the probate process altogether and instead have the estate plan be represented by a living trust. You know, when we say the word trust, you should sort of picture a separate entity or a separate bucket. We draft this trust and we name a trustee. And during your life, you can be your own trustee for your own trust. And it's a revocable trust, so you can change it or terminate it. You can put things in, take things out. But the real key 
if you do a revocable living trust is to put really all of your assets into the trust. Uh, because if you put all of your assets into the trust, then there'll be nothing passing under a will or nothing that needs to pass under a will because your trust will speak to the assets that are in the trust. And so on your passing, the assets that are in the trust will be distributed sort of seamlessly without, without any court involvement. Now, when I say put all of your assets in the trust, I don't mean certain assets such as retirement assets. You know, your IRAs and 401ks have a beneficiary designation on file. And so on your death, that beneficiary designation acts as a will substitute, really, but without a need to probate as to that asset. So you're, for, for that IRA of yours, you could designate your wife as primary and your children as contingent beneficiaries. And on your passing, it will be distributed to them without any court involvement. So something like an IRA doesn't need a will and it doesn't need a living trust. It really needs a beneficiary designation. And let, me, let me just stop you there um, a, a little bit. So, I mean, these are all great documents that you need to have in, have in place. So one of the things that we found when we meet new clients is that they're, some of them don't even have these documents. And if they do, the documents may be very, very old. We actually recently came across a client that their wills were done when they were, the kids were babies and their secondary, the secondary um, beneficiaries in the wills were going to the niece, their sister and brother-in-law and not their children. So how often do you, you know, should you be looking at your wills and your power of attorneys and healthcare proxies to make sure that you stay on top of that? Yeah. Well, certainly when you have any life-changing events, right? If someone in your life has passed or if there's been something that's happened to relationships in your life, it should be revisited. Uh, I, I tend to think as a general rule, every three to five years, these documents should be reviewed, I think, at, at a minimum, you know. And, you know, when we have these documents in place, it's not very hard to change them. You know, sometimes I'll get a phone call from a client that uh, they named someone to be the guardian for their children. And they didn't. Uh, and now they're saying, I don't know what I was thinking. He's a crazy man. He can't be the guardian. And we find it, it's very simple to change that document. And so I, I would say primarily it's when you, it's when you have life changing events. Or if not, you sort of look at it every three to five years, you know. Uh, I think that's important that a lot of people don't. They, they do their will once and they put it in a drawer and they forget about it. And then 10, 10 years later, 15 years later, or when there's a life event, then, then they're doing that. And sometimes it's too, too late. So you mentioned the, the beneficiary designations. Mm. So, so one of the things that, that we find that a lot of clients don't really under, understand is you know, is that their wills don't govern everything. Yep. Clients think that because they have a will, all their assets are going to be governed by that. So so one of the confusions is both both beneficiary designations and also the titling of assets. So why don't you speak a little bit about, you know, about that and the importance of really contract of law and asset titling yeah, sure. versus the wills. Yeah, happy to do that. In fact, when I first sit with a client, uh, I asked them to bring 
an asset schedule because you know we, we we do estate planning primarily based on the type of assets that the client has and so certain assets pass under a will and certain assets don't and so we, we might draw a will that reflects the client's wishes but if we haven't sort of laid the assets over the will and over the whole plan to make sure that it fits like a glove then we haven't served the client at all. Oftentimes, it's the case uh, that the single largest asset that the client has is a 401k and then a very large life insurance policy. And if we've just done that client's will and we haven't spoken to these other assets, we have really done a disservice uh, to that client. So we want to we want to take a look uh, at the assets and each and every one of them and. And if it is a retirement asset, we want to be sensitive to the income tax laws. And let's say, for instance, that the uh, that I have clients, they're a married couple, they have young children, uh, very, very young children, and they have, let's say, a large um, IRA. Well, how do we structure the beneficiary designation? Do we have it just go to this young toddler or do we have a trust under the will for that young toddler? Now, I, I have four children, and so if my wife and I are gone, we create trusts under our wills. Now, the question is, should that IRA or 401k, should the beneficiary designation for that asset be steered into that trust? And, you know, if it is, we have to be careful because the tax code generally allows a beneficiary of an IRA after the death of the owner to stretch out. That is to defer the income tax on that IRA uh, after death. But, you know, we only get that that right, that stretch out right, if we name someone or a trust for someone, uh, a person who has a life expectancy. So we have to be careful in the language that we use to be sure that if the client dies, that yes, if we had a youngster, we, we do want the IRA to go into the beneficiary. We, we do want it to go into the trust for the youngster, but we don't want to accelerate the income tax on it. So it just takes, I think, really some sensitive handling and, and some, some drafting. Yeah, so it's important that you, you look at this uh, and not only beneficiaries of 401ks, but also beneficiaries of life insurance mm. because those are separate and most late climate uh, clients who work, don't walk in don't understand that that's not governed by the will and you got to spend as much time on those areas as you do as the will the healthcare proxy and power of attorney let's let, let's uh, you know move over and talk a little bit about what is going on in the, with the recent tax law and address some of the some of the areas you know if, if you're Luckily enough to have an estate tax situation that has gotten a little bit less. So, Michael, why don't you talk about some of the changes that happened in the recent tax law? Yeah. Well, you know, for the past uh, 16 years, I guess, our government has been fiddling uh, with the estate tax exemptions um, ever since uh, President Bush in 2001 said he wanted to repeal the death tax. Well, from 2001 up to 2010, you know, the exemption increased every year and then you know in 2010 for one year uh we had no estate tax and then it, it so we've had it it's been very variable 
And incidentally, um, the one thing we've learned as estate planners is that our job is to recommend a flexible plan because these estate tax exemptions keep changing. So, so what do you mean by for everyone out there knows what I'm saying? What is it? What do you mean by an estate tax exemption? Yeah. So the question is, on your passing, will there be an estate tax? Or to say it differently, how much are you allowed to pass to your children free of any estate tax? Now, in the 1990s, when I was practicing law, the amount was 600,000 on the federal level that you could pass free of any estate tax. You know, you could always pass an unlimited amount to your spouse, and there's never an estate tax if your spouse is a U.S. citizen. So we do have something called the unlimited marital deduction. But when the second spouse dies and when the assets are passing to the children, the question is, how much can you pass to the children uh, free of any estate tax? And so now, or I should say recently in this past uh, month and a half, we had just a very dramatic change on the federal level. Now, on the federal level, the government says you can pass, that is you being any individual may pass, $11.2 million worth of assets free of any estate tax. And so that's true of each spouse. If That is to say, if we have a married couple and if we double it, so that's $22.4 million that married couple may pass free of any estate tax. By the way, that change, which was so dramatic, um, is in one sense only temporary because the law, it, it's um, set to sunset, meaning this very generous exemption is just disappears at the end of 2025. And then we go back to the way it was uh, as of December of 2017. So, so that means that um, you can have 20 million right now as a couple and not have an estate tax. But there is if you die in January 1st, 2026, you can automatically now have an estate tax. Well, yeah, I, I actually want, want to clarify that because I've been talking about federal estate tax. We also have a New York estate tax. You know, each state has their own estate tax systems. Some don't have any. New York now has an estate tax that is imposed uh, at uh, 5250000 So unlike the federal at $11.2 million, the exemption for New York is five and a quarter million. And that uh, that is only sort of slated to increase uh, in modest amounts, really based upon the cost of living. Do you know, the New York exemption had been hardwired to join up with the federal exemption. So we first thought that New York, because it was supposed to sort of recouple with the federal exemption next January, uh, we thought that perhaps New York would join uh, and become the 11.2 million that the federal is. Um, but New York is, um, is that's not the case. New York is hardwired to the old law, you know, the old federal law, which was really only at uh, 5.6 million uh, of uh, an exemption. So, I, so that makes planning really difficult is that one on the federal may come back. And on two, even though you don't have the federal estate tax, you may have a New York's state tax. So yeah. the, the planning is, is going to be difficult going, you know, g going forward. What are some of the things that, you know, you could do to, to avoid some of these, uh, these estate taxes? Sure. Well, let's say you have a client that uh, when you add up all their assets and I mean everything, including life insurance, the house, the 401k, 
you know, the change on their bureau, everything. Uh, let's just say for the moment, take the example that this married couple has six million in total assets. Well, I'd say there shouldn't be a tax problem there if because on the New York level, they each have a five and a quarter million exemption. So they ought to be able to move to pass ten and a half million to the children. But, you know, uh, unless there's some planning, we can get caught in an estate tax trap because if you do the most natural thing and they have a will that leaves everything to the surviving spouse, well, and then one spouse dies and now the surviving spouse has six million in assets and we suddenly have a tax problem because in New York, we only have a five and a quarter million dollar exemption. So if that sp second spouse dies with six million or more, we suddenly uh, have an estate tax that uh, sort of blindsided us. So the key is a, a flexible approach that will allow each person's exemption, each spouse's exemption of that five and a quarter million to be protected so that we really can protect 10 and a half million. And one of the most now common and, and real flexible approaches is something known as disclaimer trusts. That sounds complicated, but you know, it's simple when we boil it down. So let's say uh, that I'm that uh, couple that, let's say my, my wife and I have six million. I can have a will where I leave everything to my wife, but I, I, I wanna have a plan that will allow my wife to protect some of these assets from taxes. So I, I say that if my wife decides not to accept some of those assets that I'm leaving to her, if she disclaims assets, then whenever my wife disclaims, I say this under my will, whatever she disclaims is to go into a trust under my will for the benefit of my wife. So if I die, then my wife, in this example, might disclaim one million in assets. And if she disclaimed one million in assets, then under my example, that one million would go into a trust under my will for the benefit of my wife. And my wife would still have five million in assets of her own, which has her under the exemption. The one million that went into the trust, I say all the income from that trust should be passed to my wife. I, I can't give my wife the unlimited right to reach into that trust because the tax code says that's just like I gave it to her. But I can name my son to be a trustee and I can give him the right to reach into that trust for the benefit of my spouse. So we, we call this disclaimer trust planning. And I think the beauty of it, again, lies in its flexibility. That is that in the first instance, it goes to the person I want it to go to. I say, I give and bequeath my entire estate to my wife. But I'm, 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 I'm building in a flexible sort of option to allow my wife, this is after my death, to allow my wife to do some tax planning so that ultimately my kids don't end up having to pay uh, a lot of estate taxes sort of inadvertently, you know, without yeah. us. And let, let's just address one thing here too, is, you know, the titling of the, of the assets in, in order to be able to use these disclaimer trusts, the, the asset needs to be titled properly, right? And, yeah. You know, a joint, should it be a joint and survivor type of asset, which most people have, they, need to be very careful. So yeah. so just looking at asset titling, you can have these great documents and these great plans, but you need to make sure that the assets are titled properly. And we see that 
often that's yeah. not set up properly. Attorneys have done great jobs documenting the plan, but then they leave it up to the client to go ahead and put it in place. And the, the titling isn't done right. The beneficiaries isn't done right. So there, there's a lot of things that need to be done. So coordinating your, you know, your estate plan with both an attorney, with a financial planner, with your account is, is very critical and not in looking at the whole big, big picture. Michael, any last words you want to kind of add? For, for well, if I, have a, if I do have a minute, I'll just speak to your issue of asset tiling. And let me say, if, if I'm sitting with a married couple and they have a million, two million, even three million of assets, it makes great sense for them to own their assets joint with right of survivorship and then to have the beneficiary designations in place. Because if that's, if that's an all in place, then on the death of one spouse, there's no need to hire a lawyer to probate a will. Things just very um, seamlessly pass to the surviving spouse. But indeed, if the assets exceed five to six million by you know by any margin, and we want to make sure we have the, this possible use of a disclaimer trust, then we want to be sure each spouse has assets in, in their individual names because you can only protect an exemption if there are assets to protect. So in my example before, if all the assets were in my wife's name, then there was nothing that my wife could disclaim, that I have nothing that can be, can be protected. So indeed, we want to be sure that the asset titling sort of fits the plan, you know. Uh, that would be my comment that's, there. That's Larry. great advice. Michael, thank you. I, I think this is really critical for people to understand the importance of the fundamental documents they need. And for those that have an estate issue, all the planning techniques that need to go in and you need to speak to an estate planning attorney to make that happen. Thanks and, very much, Larry. Yeah, thank you very much, Larry. Thank you very much, Michael, for your thought leadership today. This was episode number 18, Estate Planning Fundamentals and estate planning after the recent tax law changes. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, make sure you hit the subscribe now button below. That way, every time Larry and or Michael comes out with a new idea, it'll go directly to your listening device. So for Michael Nolan and Larry Heller, this is Matt Halloran. Thank you very much, and we'll see you on the other side of the mic.